Today, we're bringing you the story of Jill Beatty, a young woman with a hearing impairment who goes missing under suspicious circumstances. This episode includes content which may be disturbing to some listeners. This is APB Cold Case. Here's your host, former police chief Mark Spahn. On Sunday, August 14, 1994, 24-year-old Jill Beatty went to the Holiday Hotel and Casino in downtown Reno, Nevada. She was there to see her friend who was bartending that night. Jill was about 5'4", 135 pounds, with brown hair and big, beautiful brown eyes. She was born deaf and used hearing aids. She could also read lips, but she had very limited speech. She was originally from Oregon and had just recently moved back to Reno for the second time. The first time was back in 1990, and then in 92, she returned to the Eugene area of Oregon for a couple of years, and in the last few months of that time, she was staying with her older sister, Tina. But in 1994, Jill suddenly decided to go back to Reno. We spoke with Jill's sister, Tina, who's also hearing impaired. She shared with us that Jill had a boyfriend at the time who will call Steve, and that Jill wanted to get away from him, and that's why she was going back to Reno. Now, we're giving you a lot of names at this point, so check out our show notes for a timeline, photos, and a guide on the people mentioned in this episode. Tina described the day that Jill left Oregon in early August 1994. Tina, her best friend who we'll call Patty, and Jill were all at Tina's apartment. Jill seemed very upset that day as she packed up her belongings and got ready to leave. Another good friend arrived to give her a ride to the bus station, and they hugged their goodbyes. But within an hour of Jill leaving Tina's apartment, Jill's estranged boyfriend, Steve, showed up and barged right in. Tina said Steve was agitated and angry. He demanded to know where Jill was. Tina told me that Steve grabbed her by the throat and started choking her. To placate him, she made up a story about where Jill was, and he finally left, but not before threatening to come back and kill her if he didn't find Jill. So at this point in August 1994, Jill's on a bus on her way to Nevada. Jill told her mom that she was going there to get her life together. Tina told me that Jill was going there to run away and hide from Steve. As we mentioned earlier, Reno was a place that Jill was familiar with. She'd stayed there before with a friend. And this friend, who we'll call Robert, was a bartender at the Holiday Casino. He also owned the apartment where Jill and others would stay from time to time. Jill's relationship with Robert was platonic, although, according to Robert, it did turn sexual for a short time before they decided to just be friends. So, back to the night of August 14, 1994. Jill visits Robert at the bar in the Holiday Resort and Casino, and then, around 6.30 p.m., she leaves the casino alone and on foot. Robert's second-story apartment was within a short walking distance of the casino, but when Robert arrives home later that night, Jill's not there. Robert doesn't find it all that unusual because Jill had left previously for days at a time. But this time, she never comes back. He does not report her missing. And Jill's mom, Cecilia, was not initially concerned when she hadn't heard from her daughter. She was giving Jill some space and thought that she was just getting settled. But Jill's 25th birthday comes and goes with no word from her. It's not until Jill's mail gets returned to her parents' home in Oregon that Cecilia decides to go to Reno herself. When she arrives on October 18th, she immediately goes to Robert's apartment. He explains that he hasn't seen Jill since August 14th, and he doesn't know where she is. And all of her belongings are still there, as if she'd be coming back. So, something is clearly wrong. 
Jill's mom goes directly to Reno PD and files a missing persons report. The very next day, Detective Charlie Domino of the Reno PD picks up the case. On October 19, 1994, I was assigned a missing person case with the name of Jill Beatty. She was 25 years old. She was living in a residence that wasn't too far from the downtown area in Reno, Nevada. She has brown hair and brown eyes, scar on her right elbow. She has an 80% hearing disability, so she wears hearing aids. Since Jill had been missing for over two months, police had lost the immediacy of her disappearance. So they start by talking with her roommates. I asked now-retired Detective Domino about Jill's bartender friend, who was also her roommate. Uh, she had known this person for years. And he was going to assist her with basically getting on her feet, getting her life together. Uh, she did have some uncorroborated, but some information stating that she was a drug alcohol user, frequented various places in the downtown area that was involved in that type of activity. So he was trying to help her straighten out. I also asked him about other roommates. We interviewed all the people that stayed in that residence from time to time that we could find over the one to two years prior. Again, there was no information that would lead us to any type of new investigative leads. So in this case, Jill was last seen on August 14th, 1994. She was in the downtown Reno, Nevada area at a hotel casino, which was called The Holiday at the time. And it's on Mill Street. It was 6.35 p.m. A friend of hers, she had been staying with, not too far from the downtown area, uh, with other people. He last seen her at the bar area in this casino. She departed, and that's the last anybody ever seen of her. Police spend time speaking with Robert. Detective Domino described the man as cooperative and helpful. Uh, we did extensive interviews with this individual for the next couple of years. It wasn't just one, it was multiple interviews. And uh, he always, the same story, the same version of his information. He even submitted to a polygraph examination and he passed that. And we asked questions, did you have any involvement with any suspicious activity in Jill's disappearance? So basically he was eliminated as a, as a prime suspect in this case. We asked him if he was a boyfriend. He said he was more of a friend. Now, he admitted to having maybe a couple intimate, as he stated, sessions with her. But he stated that, that after that occurred, he just wanted to stay friends. And they both agreed that they, they would stay friends and not become involved in that type of activity. Detective Domino said that they looked hard at Robert because he was the last person known to see Jill alive. And it took about a year of extensive interviews and thorough investigation to eliminate him as a suspect. But as he said, Robert was ultimately cleared. The other roommates had also been cleared. I then asked Domino if there was a paper trail for Jill. So the other interesting thing about Jill was that she was collecting checks monthly, and that's what she was living off of. Those checks stopped, actually it would have been the next month, September, but when she became missing and she was last seen, the very next month that check was never collected. And from then on out, it was never collected again. So we made contact with that organization to ascertain if she had changed her address, et cetera, and she had never collected those checks. They stated that the checks were returned 
and they eventually suspended her account, which again is another piece of suspicion which adds to more than just a missing person. So the investigation continues, but an investigation in the 90s looks different than an investigation today. Back in 1994, mobile phone technology was in its infancy, and Jill did not have a cell phone or a laptop. There was no digital footprint as we know it today. And the surveillance cameras at the casino where Jill was last seen at the bar only saved footage for a couple weeks. That footage was long gone when Jill's missing person report was made two months later. This would be an old-school, boots-on-the-ground investigation. Police posted flyers with Jill's picture in the areas that she frequented, but no tips came in but they do find Jill's address book that she left at the apartment. We did locate a contact book for Jill. So it was her actual just contact book, handwritten with names and addresses and telephone numbers. And we contacted a lot of those people. And again, that didn't lead us to any new investigative leads. The case stalled, but in 1996, almost two years after Jill's disappearance, the focus of the investigation by Reno police turns to Jill's ex-boyfriend, Steve. There were rumors of domestic violence. And what we come to find out is the former boyfriend had a volatile relationship with her in the past. There was, there was reports, and this is all unconfirmed, uncorroborated, but violence in their relationship was stated that she had been struck in the past uh, physically and mentally uh, by a former boyfriend. That was part of the reason why she she informed her mom that she wanted to leave the area. Jill's sister, Tina, also told us something very similar. She said that Jill confided to her that Steve had burned her yearbook, social security card, birth certificate, and some family pictures. And as you'll remember, Tina had also witnessed Steve's violence firsthand when he barged into her own apartment without permission, demanding to know where Jill was, choking her, and then threatening to kill her if he didn't find Jill. Police also learned that in October of 1994, a short time after Jill was last seen, Steve had a new girlfriend in his life. Police locate the woman who's now an ex-girlfriend, and she shared some very interesting information about Steve. We located the former girlfriend, interviewed her many a times uh, at length, and again, that relationship was uh, pretty volatile. She had stated that on many occasions that she had been involved in domestic physical violence with different types of weapons, such as golf clubs or to that nature, basically anything that was obtainable in a major heated argument. This went on throughout the next couple of years. However, after that was over, they would make up, they'd get back together again because she said she loved them. And then eventually it would lead to her getting a temporary restraining order because the violence had just escalated over the next couple of years. But she had stated that during that relationship, she located a letter in his glove box. And that letter was from Jill and that she was looking forward to seeing him. And it was dated in August of 1994. Now, she confronted him on this because that's the former girlfriend, and it's only been a couple months since their relation started. So he admitted that he went to see her in Reno, but he didn't expand on it. Coincidentally, that is the same time period where she was last seen. 
Police are very interested in the claim that Steve said he'd been coming to see Jill in Reno at about the same time that she's last seen. Why would Jill be looking forward to seeing the man she purposely moved so far away from? Could he have charmed his way back into her life? Could they have reconciled? If you remember, Jill's sister Tina said that Jill was running away from Steve, but it appears that someone had alerted him. Who told him that Jill was at Tina's house that day, getting ready to move to Reno? Tina thinks it was her own best friend, Patty. She said that Jill and Patty hated each other. And she thinks that Patty and Steve were in a sexual relationship behind Jill's back. We couldn't locate either Steve or Patty, so we're unable to confirm this information. Tina couldn't recall how Jill and Steve met. She did say that Steve was not hearing impaired, and she never saw him use sign language, even though he had two different relationships with girls who were both deaf. So, the investigation into Jill's disappearance continues when another piece of information is brought to the attention of police, this time from Jill's mother. In fact, in May of 1996, her mother contacted us. She overheard a conversation from some of Jill's former friends that stated that her past boyfriend had informed them that Jill had died of a heroin overdose in the Reno, Nevada area. Now, obviously, we never had that occur and why he would think she died period is what started leading us to look into that because at this point she was only a missing person so there was no information from her friends everybody we contacted oh yeah we understood she had a, a drug overdose none of that was coming out up until this comment that her mother informed us about from a former boyfriend and then we started looking into that. If anyone was going to have a record of someone dying of a drug overdose in Reno, it would be Reno PD. But there was no such record. Detective Domino was routinely checking for any proof of life or death for Jill. Again, he found nothing. I asked Domino to tell me more about where Steve was and what he was doing after Jill's disappearance. He said that Steve had been working and living with the now former girlfriend we'll call Chloe, on a farm near Corvallis, Oregon. Towards the end of their relationship, as they were moving around, they, they eventually went back to the Corvallis, Oregon area. And he had obtained work on a farm. And the person who owned the farm really liked him because he felt that his work was productive and it really helped. This person who owned the farm had been divorced. He was living there by himself. And he just needed the help on this farm, and he felt that this person could really help him out. Detectives visited the farm. At the time, Steve was in jail, being held on a probation violation, and Chloe had moved out. Domino described the place where Steve and Chloe had been living as more of a shelter. It was away from the farmer's main house. It had no electricity and no running water or septic service, but apparently they made do. In the back area, there was a bedroom, and it looked like it was recently lived in. A lot of this former boyfriend's property was still there. Now, he had been arrested at that point for a probation violation. So he still had the heater going in that house, which meant that he was probably going to come back there. And he liked living there, and the guy liked him there. Detectives spoke with the farmer about Steve and Chloe. That's when we started discussing the current girlfriend, and he didn't like her. And he wanted her off the property because... 
he had heard and he admitted to this here domestic issues loud issues fights crashing noises etc he thought she was a distraction to him doing his work and he stated that she wanted money from him however she stated that he was giving her money to leave so that's here nor there but she winds up leaving after a couple months there the detectives wanted to assess the information that Chloe was giving them. She mentioned how Steve liked to butcher animals. She didn't say if it was a ritual thing or it was just for for food. She didn't say that, but she insinuated that. On our way down to the house, we found a pole that had like a chain on it that had some rotted animal flesh and some animal fur. Now, we don't know, obviously, I mean, that, there's a lot of... Re- Farmers do slaughter their own cattle to eat. I mean, so there's a lot of reasons why that could be there, but it just corroborates some of the information she gave us. Chloe also mentioned that Steve was into the occult. And in this small house, there wasn't power, there wasn't sewage, there wasn't water. And things start to get a little bit more weirder for her, as she stated. She stated that he was a satanic worshiper. There was satanic symbols in that house and that during intimate sessions, he would burn her with wax, hot wax. And there were certain holidays that he really liked to celebrate. One of them was the 4th of July, which I don't understand what the real connection there is, but, and obviously Halloween. Chloe also talked about some bunkers or fallout shelters that were on the farm property. Reinforced structures were common during the Cold War over concerns of fallout in the event of a nuclear attack. We don't know exactly what these bunkers look like, but police told us they're definitely on the property. But there was one occasion where she mentions that he wanted her to go. And on this property, uh, she stated there was some old bunkers. She referred to them as World War II bunkers. However, after we talked to the owner of the farm, he confirmed that there was bunches. He said most of them are sealed. Where she gets nervous is that he wants her to go to this bunker at midnight on April 20th, which coincidentally is Adolf Hitler's birthday. What the relevance there is, I have no idea, but that's what she felt. She was scared to go there. She didn't like the way he was asking her to accompany him. She never went there. Detective Domino was interested in checking out these bunkers. When we interviewed the farmer, you gotta understand this is over the next couple of years, and we were up there a couple times. When we interviewed the farmer, and he confirmed that there were the bunkers, on that day, it was extremely, extremely bad weather. It was raining heavily, and there was no way that we had the means because these were in a dense area. He even explained, you'll never be able to get in there without, they would need an excavation team that has the proper equipment to get back there and and obviously the right clothing. We We weren't equipped for that at that time. Chloe indicated that Steve had been abusive and that she'd put up with a lot because she loved him. But that love was laced with fear. She'd been scared and refused to accompany him to the bunkers at midnight. She even told detectives that she thought he may have killed Jill. Chloe first learned of that relationship when she found a pink envelope containing a letter addressed to Steve from Jill hidden in the glove box of Steve's car. And actually it starts off when she finds the letter because now she knows he's got the former girlfriend and she knows her name. And then now that she knows that, he starts reverencing her. 
because he knows that she knows who, he, who she is. It's pretty much a lot of insinuations involving threatening her with physical harm or maybe even killing her. At least that's what she said were the type of threats. And we interviewed her extensively and she started bringing up references during their arguments. If you don't let me own you, quote unquote, if you don't let me own you, you're going to wind up like Jill. But he would never say that he actually did anything to her. And there was no evidence of, I put her in somewhere and she's over there now. It's none of that. But he would just, he would threaten her with that. And she actually firmly believes that, and this is from her version of it, that he may have killed her. But he, she can't give any details. And we there was no investigative leads. It was all hearsay. As detectives are speaking with Chloe, she tells them of an incident relayed to her by Steve about Jill. But what was coincidental was that he said during an argument when Jill was living in the same house years before that she had picked up a firearm that he owned and shot at him with it. And she said one of the rounds, this is what he was telling her, hit the door frame. And then he took the gun away from her and he didn't actually say it, but he, he insinuated that she paid for doing that, probably by physically striking her or et cetera. When uh, we went to that house, we did find a bullet hole in a door frame. So that kind of corroborated that information. According to police who interviewed Chloe, Steve had an intimidating and sometimes violent side, but he could also be charming and charismatic when he wanted to. Could that explain why Jill was looking forward to seeing him in Reno? Chloe had also returned to him at least once and then broke away and sought a restraining order. And despite the farmer overhearing arguments, he reportedly had no problem in keeping Steve on the farm. Now, let's get back to the letter that Chloe said she found in Steve's vehicle. Detectives don't actually have the letter, but Chloe remembered it in detail. In it, Jill said something about him coming to Reno, and she couldn't wait to see him. This letter, if real, was significant for detectives. They wanted to take a good look at Steve. Detectives interview an incarcerated Steve. He was in jail at the time on a probation violation. Police said that he was uncooperative and admitted nothing. There's two critical pieces of information that we had that actually make us look at him as a suspect, possibly a prime suspect. Number one is the letter, because there's correspondence between her during the same month she's missing, stating that I'm looking forward to see you, Although we never put him in the Reno area, it was referencing him coming to see her. And and that letter was in August of 1994, and that's when she went missing. So that's a, that's a key point of evidence that lead anybody investigating this case to that suspect. Let's recap. As Detective Domino said, several factors lead police to focus on Steve. There's the letter, which confirms a previous relationship with Jill and the timing of his visit to see her in Reno. His most recent girlfriend, Chloe, claims that Steve confirmed he visited Jill, although, as you heard, police don't have any corroborating evidence showing he was there. Then there's Steve's comments to Chloe that, you're going to end up like Jill. And the false rumor where he allegedly told one of Jill's friends that Jill died of an overdose in Reno. And let's not forget his history of violence reported by both Jill's family and Chloe. Detective Domino spent years doggedly investigating Jill's disappearance, as did the detectives that followed him. They want to solve this case, but they need more. Well, honestly, this case is 
obviously a very cold case. Any information we could get, we would appreciate. The case will never close until we get a disposition on it. The ultimate would be information about where she may be located if she is deceased. We don't even know that. But I can tell you that all this time since that data missing, there's no activity ever reported. The only way that could happen, you know, driver's license, normal life, right? The only way that can possibly happen is if somebody changes their identity. And we don't feel that's the case in Jill's case. Basically, anything that can assist us in any new investigative leads, we would appreciate. The Jill Beatty case is still an open investigation. Police have obtained DNA swabs from Jill's parents who are now deceased. Their DNA profile is in CODIS, a national DNA database, and can be matched to Jill if and when a DNA sample is submitted. If you have any information on the disappearance of Jill Beatty, call the Reno Homicide Unit at 775-334-2188 or send an email to rpdcoldcases at reno.gov. Thanks for listening to APB Cold Case. Tell us about your cold case at apbcoldcase at spawngroup.com. APB Cold Case is an original Spawn Group production.